You are listening to the Enormo Cast. You smell that? The aroma of Chris Mountain Dew on living cowhide? That dusky scent only means one thing. That's right, September is upon us. Getting up early to mend them fences all summer is about to pay off when them crisp temps let you pull down on holds smaller than a whisker on a tadpole. Dime Edge is going to feel like Diaz pesos. They're significantly larger, look it up. And as you gallop into September with a twinkle in your eye and a spur in your buttocks, let Black Diamond be your trusty steed. They got all you need for pebble wrestling, sport climbing, and of course the best traditional climbing protection this old cowpoke's ever seen. If you ain't riding the range with a saddlebag full of camelots, well son, you ain't cowboy, or cowgirl, or cowperson. You get my meaning. So when it comes to poking cows, well, that's your business. But as far as climbing goes, nobody has you covered head to toe like Black Diamond. Check them out at BlackDiamondEquipment.com or your favorite local shop. And though I might have gone too far this time, at the moment, Black Diamond is still a proud sponsor of the Norma cast. Are you stuck in the partner zone where that person you climb with is blithely unaware of your electric longing that's telegraphing through that stiff gym rope? Does she think of you as just another dude she schools in the bouldering cave? Does he tell his friends you're just like one of the guys? Well, break out of the partner zone and let that person know that your rock is in a hard place with a special gift from PeterWGilroy.com. Because if you thought making sure her chalk bag was always full or buying him a set of cams for his half birthday would bring out the passion, you're wrong. Do it the right way and go to PeterWGilroy.com for rock-inspired jewelry and accessories that say, to me, you're more than just a solid belay, baby. And of course, remember to enter Enormo at checkout for a discount. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place that side of town. Very That's a big nice. place. You're selling it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is October 14th, 2021, about 9.30 p.m. here in Colorado, and this is episode 229 of the Enormacast, a conversation with true legend Steve 
a.k.a. Shapoopy, a.k.a. Shapoopois, Schneider. And if you're suddenly something like Steve who or Shapoop what, then shame upon thee. But you're lucky you're here because this is an epic conversation with Mr. Schneider. Who's Steve Schneider? Well, he is a legendary Yosemite climber, legendary Tuolumne climber, and actually a legendary Patagonian climber. He's climbed worldwide, frankly. And the reason I think that this guy wears this title of legend or legendary, whether he likes it or not, is because he's actually kind of under the radar. He's kind of unknown for as much as he's done for the sport, as many firsts as he's done, as many things as he's climbed all over the world at a cutting edge. I think Steve Schneider is not actually that well known outside of Yosemite people. And if you Google Steve Schneider, which I have been Googling Steve Schneider, I do actually do research. But also, I didn't hear back from Steve about getting some pictures. And so, you know, I figured I'll just go find some on the web. You know, there's pictures of him on this or on that. And the strange thing is when you Google Steve Schneider or Steve Shapoopy Schneider, more pictures of Hans Florine come up than anything. It sort of makes sense because they're friends. They kind of rival each other for the amount of times they've climbed El Cap. I think maybe Hans has climbed it more times, but I'm pretty sure Steve's climbed more different routes on El Cap because Steve is, I mean, dude is like a five, five thirteen climber on El Cap, or at least at times he has been a five thirteen climber on El Cap, and it's pretty intense and pretty wild that he's still doing it. He's still going after new for him routes on El Cap, you know, in his sixties now, which is is wild. The guy has got a fountain of youth for sure. And I think it's good humor and uh, sort of good vibes that have kept him going strong in the climbing world. And as some of you longtime listeners know, it is my mission in life and with the Enorma cast to help fill in this gap in the popular history of climbing that I think exists post Stone Masters up to kind of the Dean Potter era. This like couple decades where... Things were getting consolidated, but I don't know why we don't revere it in the way we revere the John Longs and the Jim Bridwell era beforehand or the Dean Potter era that came after. You know, a gap that was so well illustrated in Yosemite Uprising, which is an otherwise great film, and I understand it was long enough already they couldn't do every single detail. But there's this like 80s, 90s moment, 80s, early 90s moment that I think we've just not consolidated in our brains. And certainly Steve Schneider's career preceded those eras and also is still ongoing. But there was a lot of stuff that he was doing at that time that I think was uh, was breaking records and changing climbing. Consolidating 513 in the valley, probably putting up the first 514s up in Tuolumne, you know, the first uh, one-day solo of El Cap, um, all sorts of things like that, that that was going on, and he was just right in the thick of it. And by his own admission, you know, that whole era is, in Yosemite is overshadowed by Kauk and Backer, but Steve was a disciple of both those men, especially John Backer. However, the most impressive thing about Steve Schneider, I think, is his willingness to evolve. And he was a disciple of Backer, so he had a very strict ground-up ethic, you know, low or no bolt ethic, all those sorts of things, but he was willing to change and modify his tactics depending on where he was. You know, he went to Smith Rock and sport climbed early on. He went to Europe 
and learned about it there. He even had a stint in rifle, and yet when he was in Yosemite, he still tried to stick to his ground-up ethics that he had learned from John Backer. And it's funny because we talk about all these ethical debates in the interview, and we talk about things like hangdogging or previewing on rappel. And I'm not even sure everyone even knows what hangdogging means anymore, but it simply means hanging on the rope after you've fallen and rehearsing the moves. Considered completely standard now. That's how you learn how to rock climb. That's how you do hard moves. But there was a time when this was considered highly illegal and highly suspect. It's hard to believe, but that was that was the case. And Steve was right in the mix during that time. But I don't think that Steve ever got stuck in any of those eras. He always kind of moved forward. So we recorded this one remotely. Steve was at his home in Oakland. I was in Colorado. Sounds pretty good. There's a few little problems. And of course, getting it going was always is always tricky. I'm kind of over the uh, the remote ones. I'm going to Definitely go back to face-to-face as hard as I can. But I didn't want to miss an opportunity to talk to Steve. Because I want him on record. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So why don't we get to it. The conversation with Steve Chipupois Schneider. Hey, Sportiva. What are you doing over there? Wait a minute. You're not messing with the TC Pro, are you? Wait, you're trying to make them better? Come on, let's not get crazy. Just put the shoes down, walk away. We'll have another espresso and talk about this, amico. The TC Pro is pretty much perfect as is. A pair of those free-sold El Cap for Pete's sake. Let's not forget that little Tommy Caldwell designed those with a box of Crayolas and some glitter glue while most of us were still wondering why our downturned shoes wouldn't smear for merda. Ascolta me, fratello. The off-with maniacs are going to lose it when you change their go-to shoe. And let me tell you, you don't want to mess with those people. They're loco. Oh, wait. You're telling me Tommy and Alex have suggested some changes to make them better? Well, those guys are down. I guess I can't complain too much. Go ahead and see what you can do. And let us know when we can check out the new improved TC Pro at Sportiva.com or try them on at our favorite local shop. But look here, Sportiva. You start fussing with those Miras. And it's pistols at dawn. Capiche? I was in June Lake with my wife and her van, and it was September 1st, like a month ago, and I had this intense pain in my gut above my groin, and I'm like, oh, I got gas or something. So I stepped outside, tried to take a dump, and that didn't really work. So I kind of went back to bed, but. I wasn't going to sleep because I was hurting. And finally, I'm rolling around, and Heather's like, Let's take you to the hospital. And I knew what it was. I told her, I think I got an appendicitis, honey. And I fully called it. I went in there and like collapsed on the hospital floor. And the receptionist is like, Oh, I bet he has an appendix burst. I had that with my husband last year. He looks just like my husband. And I did call it. I mean, it was intense pain, localized right there. And we went through the CAT scan. And that was pretty much definitive that I ruptured my appendix. And it was a good thing we weren't on a wall or backpacking, which we could have been. And big shock, I'm getting an operation like that day that I hadn't mentally prepared for. 
and I've been pretty much recovering ever since and kind of on the slow curve of recovering. I've talked to other people that have, you know, been in their trees cutting, trimming trees after three weeks, but that that's not me. I think maybe my age and maybe my diabetes has kind of put me on the slower curve. One of the interesting things that you, you said when we first started talking about doing this thing is just like how bored you were and, um, you know, how bummed you had to sort of cancel or at least rearrange a lot of the stuff you had planned for this month. And to me, it like spoke to me about your climbing career um, and your sort of longevity in the sport that, you know, aside from the pain and the circumstances, the main thing it felt like was the 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 debilitating thing was just the boredom of having to sit there and recover yeah well i've read a few books and that's all good (laughs) and i've caught up on all my soap operas and every (laughs) sports event that's gone on but i mean i was supposed to be on el cap last week was my plan it's Mm -hmm. really what i want to do i'm i want to do roots i haven't done and I want to do at least one route I haven't done in the spring and one route in the fall and wasn't able to pull off a route. Actually, I did do a route this spring, but, you know, I'm trying to keep it up while I can still doing it because mm-hmm. it's has so much meaning to mm-hmm. me to, to be on a big wall and going through that experience that I want to keep doing it. There's obviously one place that you know, you've been associated with your entire climbing career in Yosemite. Like so many Yosemite climbers, you, you've you've traveled the world for climbing, but always returning there. And, and like I said, associated with El Cap and with so many things there. So tell me about the first time you set foot in Yosemite and the first time you started climbing there. Well, my parents were vacationing in Yosemite every year. So I was mm-hmm. there before I could even remember. But my earliest memories were being there over my birthday, May 31st, and I got like a Batman costume and I had a cape and stuff. And I was running all around Lower River Campground in a Batman cape, looking at all the big walls around me. And my brother, Bob Schneider, he was like my first hero of rock. He went on to make the 20th ascent of the nose route in 1968 and Mm -hmm. he was about 14 years older than me so i came along and you know he was like my revered god he was who i wanted to be like and he took me and my dad up the grack center in 1971 when i was 11 years old it was my first route ever in the valley and i remember getting up two pitches up that and just looking across the valley at Royal Arches and Washington Column and looking across the trees for a couple hundred feet above the trees. And I just thought that was the most awesome thing. And I just knew when I was 11 that that's what I wanted to do. I wouldn't actually develop how to do it for a few years later on in my teens, but it was a vivid memory a family memory where I was exposed to nature in this beautiful environment with some really good people. And that just seemed like a really cool thing to do. You know, dad taught us all how to climb in the Boy Scouts and gave us the initial knot tying, going to Indian Rock and Berkeley, climbing, top roping, rappelling. Back when we were using hemp ropes 
And eventually I really saw that my brother was like this hero. He did like this amazing stuff, not just in Yosemite, but in mountains beyond. And yeah, like I said, he was my first hero of rock. And I really just got a big idea that if he could do it, I should be able to do it too. And then it was, it wasn't too much further that, uh, you were already pretty much a denizen of Yosemite and even on, on SAR in your very early twenties. Is that right? Yeah, I did my first El Cap route when I was 19 years old. I had done like my first wall when I was 18 years old. That was the south face of Mount Watkins with Paul Gagnier. That was like a huge six-day adventure from the valley to valley. It was so cold on that that our water bottles froze on the final night. We had no water to drink to top out with. And our friends 3,000 mm-hmm. feet down in the valley, they came off the nose that they were trying to do because it was so cold. But we just sort of persevered in that. And I got on the rescue team pretty early on. I had a little interview. I think I was about 22 years old. And I went in with my friend, John Barbella, who was already established on rescue. And John Deal asked me one question. He goes, you know the difference between a piton and a carabiner? And I'm like, uh, yeah. He's like, all right, you're on. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> it's a lot harder to get on the rescue team right now because a lot of people want to do it. But back then, all, all you really needed was someone to vouch for you. That's amazing. That was 1982, I think, when I got on Valley Rescue. 82, 83, somewhere in there. And that was on the Valley site. That's an intense time because, I mean, we've mythologized sort of the golden age and then obviously Valley Uprising and that stuff has is, is solidified the stone masters in, in our memory. And that, you know, that's solidly in when, you know, guys like Bridwell and, and everybody else was were, were still around. What was the scene like in 1982 in terms of... Uh, of climbing in the valley, but also like that, that SAR program and, and what was going on there. Well, Bridwell was still like doing phenomenally hard aid routes, but as far as free climbing, the stone masters were kind of dying out as far as pushing it. There was two climbers that were gods to the rest of us. And of course those were John Backer and Ron Kalk. And basically they had people that fell under their wings and we considered ourselves no less than disciples of them. They were big time. They looked great in commercials. They interviewed well and we wanted to be like them. We wanted to climb like them and they were really inspirational for all of us that were climbing in that era. And you mentioned uh, Barbella, but who, who else is we in terms of um, who's your cohort? In this uh, in this sort of cult of backer and and calc that was forming, and also one of my pushes here on with the Enormacast has openly been to sort of re-highlight the '80s because I feel like you know back to this Valley Uprising thing, like they pretty much fully skipped the '80s in that, and then I feel like a lot of the great climbers from the '80s have been I don't want to say forgotten, but sort of not given their sort of full due in in history, and even though that the '80s was when we formed our 
what we really think about free climbing to this day, you know. Um, I think we're really formed in the eighties. So who else was it was coming up with you in terms of these this nineteen eighty two scene, eighty three when you were in on SAR? Well, yeah, it's a, a good point because, you know, Backer and Calc were so in the limelight that it was kind of hard to make an impression, you know, besides them. And then was it too long before you had the era of Tommy, Beth, Dean, and Steph? And they kind of took over the headlines. And in 1984, when I first pulled onto the rescue site, I was with Kurt Smith and soon to join us was Scott Burke and Scott Cosgrove. And the four of us, we came to be known, at least to ourselves, as like the fearsome foursome. And we totally revered John Backer. He climbed with all of us at some points in our earlier careers and mentored us, gave us inspiration. And truly, John Backer was one of the most inspirational climbers. I'd say one of the 10 most influential climbers ever in the world. So there's also another faction that was kind of under Calc. Calc worked for the Yosemite Mountaineering School, and that was a cool hang. They had the rat room and the campfires behind there. And that was like a focal point. We'd go over there and there'd be like beer spreading around. There was the ping pong table. And TM Herbert was there and he was just so revered. He was like a legend that was so cool. And he'd hang out, drink with us and tell us stories. And those are special times for sure. And kind of following Kalk were a couple climbers that went on to climb 514 and also worked at the Yosemite Mountaineering School. And that was Tom Herbert, son of TM, and Ed Berry. And as locals, the six of us, the four I mentioned on the rescue team, and the two with the school were following Calc and Backer. And we were primarily instrumental in putting up all the 513s or repeating them in that era in Tuolumne. You know, the other thing that I've, I've um, you know, noted about your career, and al- although you weren't necessarily the first, but it seems like you were very interested in free climbing on El Cap um, a lot earlier than a lot of people were considering it, you know, higher than the base or, um, you know, willing to go up on these these routes and and free climb large sections of them, even if, if it didn't entirely go free. Can you talk about a little bit about that that interest and, and uh, where you sort of were in that movement and what influenced you to um, have new eyes? I mean, with in mind that like I've talked to um, Mark Hudon and, and Max Jones, you know, some of the earliest guys to go up and try to free climb the South Bay, uh, I believe in 79, and how that just wasn't this thing that people were considering. And then um, by the mid 80s, it seems like uh, it was being considered. So can you talk about like your inspiration to to think about that, getting up off the ground and freeing big sections of things like Excalibur and, and other routes like that? Mark Hudon and Max Jones were entirely influential on my climbing. The articles that they had in Mountain Magazine in two successive issues called The State of the Arts and The Art of the States, 
propose their as free as can be philosophy. And to them, it was like, well, we'll do what we can. We can free climb up to like 512 plus. So we'll just go on our route, free climb up to 512 plus, not be worried about the remaining aid on it. So they were like the big precursors to all the routes going free that went free in Yosemite. Talked about their Salafe effort. And yeah, they climbed 512 plus. They did like the first descent of the Enduro corner up to the roof. I mean, that stuff was totally proud back in the day. This is, I think, late 70s. So one of the things that inspired me to do is a free attempt on lurking fear. And it would have been helpful for me if I'd had a solid partner through those days. You know, I was always jealous of Paul Piana and Todd Skinner because they were partners and they, they brought it together with this do or die type attitude. And I was like sporting different partners on the single wall I was trying to free climb. But I did what I could and I free climbed 95% of lurking fear, basically paved the way for Tommy and Beth to come along and do it. And that's an extremely hard route. I don't think it's been free climbed and had a second ascent since. And also on the West Buttress, I climbed that. I did have a partner on that, Bill Price, the legendary climber. Bill and I free climbed 85% of the West Buttress. And we did that up to 513A. That's about how hard I could climb if I was really dedicating myself in the middle of a big wall and it has like the 23rd pitch or 21st pitch is like a 513A pitch on that climb Excalibur. And yeah, we didn't free at all, but we were a precursor to some of these things going free. And I didn't really feel like I was pushed to free climb every bit of the route. That was the style nowadays, just free what you can. Hey, I can do this level. Let's hit this level and we'll be good with that. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like there, even to this day, there's like this black and white, like one or the other. You know what I mean? Like we're going to either go up and just basically like aid climb the stove legs or you're supposed to like free climb every single move and, and, you know, even, um, after considering the free rider, you know, after that, I, that was my kind of message to people. And it still sort of felt, fell on deaf ears of like, Hey, you know, there's like a couple few moves of five twelve up there. So if you're a five eleven climber, why not just go free climb all of it, but that, you know, like, but it still seemed to be kind of this in this day and age, like this message of kind of falling on deaf ears that you can go up and, and free a ton of pitches with that intent versus, um, you know, freeing every move of it. Well, like I said, Max and Mark, they kind of made that the standard of the day, just go and do what you can do. And this is a four L cap had been free climbed at all. So there was obviously the big change was 1993 when the first lady of rock Lynn Hill, you know, she did the nose free. And she's like, it goes free, boys. And that was a big challenge to everyone else that, wow, these routes can go free. But you're probably going to need to be climbing 513 plus now 
maybe 514A to be able to do that. And then, of course, she stepped the ante in a big way in 94 by free climbing the nose in a day and introducing speed free. And that was just, uh, I like the way Adam Wainwright, the British climber, said that when he heard that Lynn Hill had freed the nose in a day, he said that he was absolutely gobsmacked. <laughs> and that kind of changed it after then. After that, people were really wanting to free climb every move on a route. Lynn Hill's era led into the Hoover era, and they really took it and ran with it. Those guys, they came from Germany. They free climbed our hardest routes on El Cap, right under our noses, slept with our most beautiful women, and then went home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, big chests and a pair of leather pants, you know, it's hard to compete with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, jokes aside, that, you know, I've noted in this situation specifically, but also elsewhere, that um, a lot of times it it takes like a, a bit of an outside influence to come in and shatter norms. And, um, you know, and even Lynn, though she was, you know, she was always uh, someone in Southern California and obviously climbing Yosemite, I, you know, I've never you know, put her in the thick of it there in Yosemite. She was definitely, especially at that time, just a worldwide climber and even living in Europe during those, those times as well. And, you know, so she was something of an outsider, despite the fact that she was like a Southern California, you know, her bona fides there were, were established, but then the Hubers really, like you just said, just kind of waltzed in and, and kind of broke the glass for everybody as far as El Cap, like, how are you sort of feeling about that? And and where was your climbing at when that era hit? Well, my thing is during the summers, I was trying to focus on trying to climb as hard as I could in Tuolumne Meadows. I wasn't worried so much about El Cap because I got so involved with climbing in Tuolumne. For one instance, I had Greg Child come up, hey, Steve, I got this route I want to do, first ascent of on El Cap. And I'm like, well, let's go free climbing. We went climbing to Hammerdome and Tuolumne. And at the end of the day, I was like, no, nah, I can't leave it. I can't leave Tuolumne. I don't want to go down to the hot ditch. You know, and I pretty much lost out on doing the first ascent of either Aurora or Ironhawk, one of those routes. And I just had a focus in there. So... It was also hard to try and get partners to free climb with you on El Cap in the 90s. You know, I asked Peter Croft at one point, Jason Campbell, and the interest just wasn't really there for people to do in it. So I should have been climbing El Cap free in the 90s, you know, not after the millennium passed because, you know, I got older and I pretty much you know, wasn't really expecting to do it until unexpected circumstances came up. But Tuolumne kind of, it came to kind of my big focus, and especially Medlicott Dome. I was so locked into trying to do what became the hardest routes in Tuolumne, still uh, up there on Medlicott Dome. So, I mean, you were establishing 514 up there um, in... I mean, again, 
pretty early in, in that game, and uh, some of those roots are unrepeated. Yes, my roots, Raging Waters and Circus Circus, they're both 514. They're both unrepeated, although a lot of people have tried on Raging Waters, but they're kind of different roots with different histories, different types of roots. And my mistake is I hadn't climbed a 514 when I put those up. So, of course, I didn't think I was in that upper echelon of climbers. The only 514 I think around was to bolt or not to be. And I ended up rating both those routes 513D, which is basically as hard as I thought I could climb then. And then I did to bolt or not to be in 1992. I realized after doing that, that, wow, these routes in Tuolumne that I did are at least as hard as that, if not like a half grade or a full grade harder. Well, you know, you just mentioned like different histories. Um, you also mentioned uh, of those two routes. And also you mentioned, uh, you know, climbing up in, in uh, Smith Rock early on and thinking back to a, a word you used with uh, talking about uh Backer and Kalk and and the the followers of those two, you know, you you actually were I think you used the word faction. So tell me about the evolution of maybe how you looked at climbing ethics in terms of bolting, in terms of sport climbing. You know, I think Kurt Smith is also a very interesting character who let his his attitudes towards those two kind of aspects of climbing, scary versus sort of sport climbing. Um, evolve over the years, and I feel like you're this—you're the same type of person, having, you know, started in one place and ended up in another. Can you talk a little bit about the, the evolution of how you approached, you know, those ethical battles that were raging, maybe around you, maybe you were part of them, um, as the '80s progressed? Because it's also part of why I think the '80s are so interesting, is because a lot of those things got sort of settled, but they were very passionate, uh, you know, arguments. Uh, during the 80s, I think, is when they really got head-to-head. So what about your involvement from, you know, a a sort of deep in Yosemite guy to someone who's sport climbed um, early on all around the U.S. and, I don't know, maybe even around the world? Well, I had the chance to become acquainted with John Backer when I was going to school at Chico State in California. And his girlfriend at the time, Brenda Lugo, was a friend of mine because she climbed and we'd go to like these slideshow parties we would put on from our latest climbing trips. And as a sophomore in college, John Backer started coming up from Joshua Tree and visiting her. And invariably, he needed someone to climb with. And usually that duty fell on my shoulders. So I'd met Backer. Briefly in Joshua Tree, when I was working on Bearded Cabbage as 10C on The Old Woman, and I'd fallen off the crux trying to go from the ledge to the crack, and I kind of had my rope there. I think I was leaving it through and was with my buddies, and Backer comes up. We had never seen him before. And here he was in real life with the Fure shoes, the socks, the shorts. The long blonde locks right there before us. And he says to us, Mind if I boog on up? 
And we're like, yeah, sure, go for it. And we saw John Backer climb the bearded cabbage, which at its crux has a gnarly 25-foot fall potential onto a huge yucca plant. I mean, the impalement factor is extreme on that crux. And he just hiked it like it was a walk in the park. Literally, like, he was on a sidewalk. I get goosebumps just talking about this story. So, of course, I watched him do the sequence, and I followed him up it, right up, no problem, on my second go. Looked around for Backer, and he's walking across the desert to solo the left ski track. And I just thought, wow, that's perfection. So when I got to meet him in Chico, you know, we were training in the gym together. We were going out to like Sugarloaf and local climbing areas. And he basically had a couple rules. One was like, you know, when you're climbing Schneider, you got you to gotta start from the bottom and go to the top. So that was huge to us. You know, that meant no wrap inspection on our stuff. So. We did all our routes back in the day that we were putting up without any wrap inspection. And we were running it out like he was. He was running it out. He was like, yeah, I handed him some stoppers on this one route sugar bun. And he's like, yeah, I don't need all these. And takes like, you know, four or five stoppers for this 60 foot climb. You know, if I'm. 10 feet above a stopper, I feel pretty good because I free solo so much. And I'm like, okay, wow. And we also had his backer ladder in the gym set up. And this was 1981. He was training to go to Europe. He had a big trip coming up with Mike Blakinski. And he knew it was, he was going to be judged there for a lot of that he had done. And I climbed the backer ladder once up and down. And he did two laps up and down, up and down to my one. And he was like all psyched that, you know, okay, I'm twice as strong as him. But I was psyched because I was half as strong as John Backer. (laughs) So his influence was just instrumental to me because it came so early. And if you talk to Kurt Smith, he would say the same thing. When he was in Joshua Tree right out of high school, one season, Backer came and just totally mentored him, extended his hand to friendship and these ethics that basically Kurt says made me the climber that I was for life back then, right out of high school with these ethics. No hangdogging, that was totally not allowed. Run it out, use your mind to deal with climbing. And that was a thing that we were just starting to brace to do these routes where you basically had to break in free solo mode to be able to handle these huge runouts, you know, cheat stone, start bouldering on wisdoms, and ultimately the back of urine that he put up in 1981 and garnered a huge reputation. It's still probably the most famous route in all of Tuolumne Meadows. And people still come out and do that. And it's a route where you have to prepare your mind by doing runouts, getting used to the climbing and being able to handle looking at a 40 footer and it's still 10 feet to the next bolt. 
you know, that had never been done before. When Wolfgang came out in 1982 and tried to repeat it and, you know, took big falls with his partner, Frenchman, Terry Renault. And, you know, that was like the standard, the ultimate standard of, of doing that route. And when I did the second ascent in 1983, it was mostly because John Backer talked me into it in the parking lot and kind of gave it to me. He's like, Schneider, you can do it. You've been doing these routes on wisdoms. You know, you get up there, there's, you put your feet on, on equal level knobs and you can rest there pretty much anywhere. And he was right. Then when I look back on it, I wonder if John actually wanted me to do the route or if he just wanted to see another big whipping fall. <laughs> anyway, I went to Europe in 1983 and was completely influenced by climbing with all the French hardmen. I was with Scott Fry on that trip on an international climbing exchange. Wolfgang Gulich and Kurt Albert were there. And... Kim Kerrigan from Australia was also there. And after the trip, I climbed with Kim Kerrigan for like four or five weeks. And he taught me that also like backer, that climbing is very mental, that you can do whatever you want to do. You just have to work for it, you know, have realistic goals and then shoot for them and do what you got to do to do it. But I also learned about hangdogging there, what the French were doing. And I was starting to lose this quality where, okay, don't hang dog. That's not a good ethic. I had to embrace this bit that hang dogging makes you a better climber. At first, we couldn't handle that. We didn't think that that made sense. But of course, when I started hang dogging, initially, probably mostly in Australia, my trip in 86 that I did with Kurt Smith, that yeah, all of a sudden I was climbing 513 and I don't know if it made me a better climber, but it definitely made it so I could do harder routes. So I was exposed early on from that France trip in 83 and the Australian trip in 86 to the best climbers in the world and how they were doing it, the techniques they were using to do it, some of the training that they were used to doing it. and. That was really influential, just going from there and going back home. I still always wanted to do things from the ground up in Yosemite. I still, to this day, to never put in a bolt on a Pell on a first ascent, maybe a retro bolt after I'd already let it. And I modified my techniques where I do pre-inspect things to make sure I'm not going to get hurt. But I'm up there hand drilling off stances or hooks or slung knobs. And it's the idea that a first ascent should be a huge adventure, that there's a focus on that. And that was part of the whole tradition was to put up a route on site and go from the ground up without rappel inspection. Yeah. You know, the one thing I sort of admire, though, in what you've done is that you weren't so dogmatic that you felt as though, you know, there was only one way to do things no matter where you went. And uh, and that's always been kind of my sort of ethical, you know, interest is is the idea that, yeah, you know, like you just said, in Yosemite, this is how I do things because I want to 
you know, honor this tradition and I want this adventure and everything else. But that's not going to stop me from going to a place where the traditions are different and doing things differently. And um, it's interesting because I didn't realize that you'd had that sort of um, European stint because it it feels like that was a, a real divider for a lot of climbers of your era is basically whether or not they did visit and climb um, with European climbers in the 80s, you know, because uh, um, Russ Clune and, and, you know, even uh, Skinner and all these guys did go over to Europe and go, whoa, this is really interesting and, and start to kind of let that leak into what they were doing back in the States, you know, whether they, they went full on or whether they did what you did where you just applied it where it was necessary. Um, but Kurt, Kurt's kind of the same way, you know, having gone on to be a primary developer in rifle and in Mexico and all these big bolted routes, he, he, he found kind of the middle way, if you will. Um, was that in your mind in terms of, you know, honoring ethics in the places you went and, and finding a middle way through, uh, the way you approached climbing? Well, there was a big difference between when I didn't ever hang dog and when I did, and when mm -hmm. I really started bracing it. In 1986 in Australia, I, I could see, wow, I, I'm still trying to on-site these really hard routes. But afterwards, I was trying to get them on the second try. And mm -hmm. I would hang and work the moves. I always had a technique for trying to do the crux three times in a row where I'm doing it where I'm tired, I'm not recovered, taking mm -hmm. real short rest. And that would kind of simulate conditions of coming from the ground that pump that you get coming from the ground because you might be able to do a move no problem after hanging on the rope for a couple minutes but you can't do that coming off the ground you might need to adjust your sequence so to speak so as i started hang dogging more it didn't seem a big deal for me to do it in tuolumne in the 90s i was hang dogging on roots uh to try and get them as fast as i could you know, my deal was like, if I couldn't do something on site, I was trying to do it first try. So my technique there kind of changed. And all of a sudden I was ticking 513s really fast. I had a couple on site flashes, but mostly I was falling off them and trying to get them second try or third try, whatever, doing them as fast as I can using the modern day hang dogging techniques. And the rap bolting that came to Tuolumne in about the late 80s, early 90s, I think that was a lot because Ron Kalk had traveled to Europe and he had embraced it. And there's like a particular example where Tom Herbert put up Laser Blade, this beautiful 512C arete on the boulders between below Phobos Demos Cliff. And I went up to Tommy afterwards and gave him some shit, you know, about rap bolting. And he just got in my face right away. He was livid about it. And there's also an instance where I talked to Mark Chapman about maybe we could have some domes in Tuolumne that were for rap bolting and some that we could keep for ground up because there's pretty limited ground. There's not an infinite amount of real, real estate to put up the hardest roots in Tuolumne. And then Chapman just got in my face. He actually put his finger in my chest. And this is after he had punched out Backer in the parking lot or sucker punched him. 
And I, I just look down at this finger in my chest. I go, hey, Mark, you got my finger, your finger in my chest. And he kind of looked at it and withdrew it back and knew that I was, wasn't worth that. I want to do that. So Backer and I differed there in that he was willing to lose friends over ethics. And I wasn't. I wanted to be friends with everybody. And to do that, I had to not necessarily embrace rap bolting in Yosemite, but I had to pretty much go along with it and let my friends do what they were going to do. And I could still do my own thing. And that was cool. So that was a big change there when rap bolting came in because you could have either been in the war or just try to skate out of it. And I just chose to skate out of it. I didn't want to deal. So when you were talking about doing these really hard routes in, in uh, Tuolumne, those were put up ground up? Well, let's go back to 89. Okay. Two Coloradoans came out. Okay. Dan Michael and Craig Reason. And they wanted to put up a real hard mm-hmm. route on Medlicott. And John Backer had gone up to the base of this one route, had put up an approach pitch. And he had deemed this route above that as undoable that it'll never go. So Dan Michael and Mm -hmm. Craig Reason, they went to the top, rappelted it, inspected it, and they thought it would go. And they called it just a little play on what Backer was calling it. Because Backer said it would never go. They called it Never Say Never. And Michael was really close to doing the first pitch, and he might have been able to do the first pitch on it in 89. (laughs) But the route has some problems. It's really sharp, so they were constantly having to take more rest days than they wanted to because their tips were just shredding. And they also did a bad thing. They reinforced holds with glue. And let me tell you, Medlicott Dome does not need any glue. That rock is perfect, immaculate. I'm not religious, but somehow it's made by God. And what they did is they created holds that weren't going to last. So 1990 came around. Tom Herbert got on the route, and these guys had sold them the route. They had threatened to take all their repel place bolts out and strip the route unless Tommy gave him like $75 to pay for it, which I thought was totally lame. I'm like, if you're <laughs> going to come wrap both the Medlicott, just leave your freaking bolts in. You don't have to like retrieve a petty 75 bucks. So Tommy got on it and had a tentative working name of Perestroika, which was like the Russian for like the new world or new age back then. And it was going to be a super hard project, and he didn't want to get into it. So he gave it to me and made me pay him $75 for the bolts. And, of course, Tommy doesn't even remember that now. But I was like, one hand, I could pay him 75 bucks and be friends for life. On the other hand, I, I could save myself 75 bucks and I'd be enemy for life with Tom Herbert. So, of course, I paid him the money. And I got on the route and worked it religiously over the summer of 1990. 
trying to get partners left and right to, to blame me. At least it was just a single pitch route. So it wasn't like too extreme. There's just one approach pitch. And eventually later that summer, maybe into September, I was able to put it all together in Red Point, this super hard route, which at the time was the hardest route I had ever done. I knew that, but I still didn't think it was 514. And I called it Raging Waters because that kind of has a mystique of being in controversy, the raging, and also because I had competed in Snowbird that year and we had gone to Raging Waters, the theme park me and Andy Pavel, and I had actually tried to push off one of the jumps and landed high where there's no water on one of the tubes and still have like a little scar from where I abraded against the wall of the tube. So we call that Raging Waters, and I called it 13D, and was thinking about doing the second pitch, but 1991 came around and I started looking at something else that would become known as Circus Circus. And Circus Circus was my route. While Raging Waters was put up on rappel with reinforced holds, when people started getting on that about 2014, 2015, Ben Polanco and Steve Roth made a big go at trying to do it. And they kept breaking off holds that I think were the reinforced holds. And they could still do the moves, but it was getting harder and harder as they kept breaking like six or seven holds around the cruxes. So the route changed, and it's really harder now than it used to be. And last summer in 2020, Connor Herson was working on it, the young kid who free climbed the nose at 15. And he broke like the crux hold in half with his foothold. And he says it still goes, but it's going to be like 514 plus, maybe even 515 now. So it's way harder than what I initially did it. It's not like the climb that I did. And it just shows my point that putting reinforced glue to keep holds on Medlicott, not what you do. You know, you just climb everything naturally. Some stuff will break off, some won't. And you just deal with nature deals with you. So Circus Circus was a, a line you could see from the parking lot. And it was multi-pitch. And it had a hard start, 512 plus first pitch, 513 minus second pitch. And I was doing this from the ground up in the tradition that John Backer taught me. And I got it all bolted. And my friend that was helping me at the time put some of the bolts in. A guy named Dave Fearnley, or Dr. Dave from New Zealand. And he had been to Reno and been to Circus Circus, the casino, and he's wearing a Circus Circus hat on the route. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to name this after this casino. That's just great. It's all happening. It's like a big party with circus acts going around. And he was really good. At one point, he actually was putting RPs in the crux pitch. It's that natural line. You can get these little nuts in it. And he ran it out too much. I ended up having to come back and taking one of his bolts out that he had placed on lead and putting two bolts into there because the climbing was so hard. You needed a bolt every six to eight feet. So my goal was to do the whole route in a day. 
not necessarily without falls, but eventually I have that I did 17 days of work on this route. And I think it was seven days of putting the bolts in and 10 days of just working on that one pitch till I got it. And this was hard. I had to like drag people out of the parking lot and I'd start to talk to someone and some of the other guy would go, Hey, don't let him sucker you into going up on Medlicott Dome. He's trying to get you to go jug a bunch. But finally, Rich High School, another fellow on the rescue team, jugged up with me as I led the whole climb on a fateful day in 1991. And I free climbed every pitch without falling. And it took me a while to realize not just that I had put up the first 514s in Yosemite, but Circus Circus in 1991 with his multiple pitches of 512 plus, 513, and the crux pitch I would venture is 514B. I think it was the hardest multi-pitch route in the world at the time. The only routes that I think compare were a trivecta of routes that beat Kamalander, uh, the Austrian-German climber had put up these really hard roots in the Dolomite that were up to 514A. And beautifully enough, he had also done the done the ground up. He was just like the leader of ground up hard multi-pitch in the day in Europe. But after doing To Bolt or Not To Be, the fifth ascent in 1992, I realized that Raging Waters and Circus Circus were at least 514A if not 514B. And Circus Circus, unfortunately, it hasn't had any people really try hard to do it. Now, Katie Lambert, bless her heart, she got on the route and tried to do it. But I think on the crux pitch, she just, you know, she's only five feet high and it's so hard for her on granite routes. I mean, a lot of the 513s she does are fully 514 for her. And she couldn't do this one move, so she gave up on it. And James Lucas Adley actually got on it with Madeline Sorkin, mistakenly trying to wrap the back of Urian. And they're like, wow, this doesn't seem like 511. They were trying it. But you see him on Super Topo going, wow, the rock on this route <laughs> is so good. It doesn't need any help. There's no chipping. There's no gluing. On Circus Circuit, it's totally natural as the day that I first got on it. And it is no less than my opus, the proudest route on rock that I ever did in my life. Well, when are we sicking Connor on it? Seems like he's the guy. Well, I have sicked him on it, and he's been trying to do Circus Circus. <laughs> and I've had a couple phone calls out to him this summer, and he apparently was on it this summer trying to do it. But he's also getting a feel for Tuolumne. And he recently put up a 514 on Drug Dome. And Drug Dome, it's like Medlicott. It's smaller, but it has some of the angle that you need, vertical and overhanging ground, to put up extreme roots. Last year, 2020, he had put up the obvious crack through the Oz roof that we all looked at for years, but it was so long and hard to get up there. None of us seriously tried it, but he pulled that off with his dad, I think, blame him. 
uh, I think he called it something mellow, like graham cracker or something. And he he's not gotten on Circus Circus. I think he could do that because it's not extreme. You know, it's, I think, only 514B where Raging Waters has just become this really sickly hard route that I think it's going to get done maybe by him because, I mean, who wouldn't want to put up the first 515 in Yosemite, right? Uh, Circus Circus is six pitches. And although the pro is really good, maybe there's one little run out on the second 512 pitch. But it's all there, but it's also six pitches of hell, you know. And I think Circus Circus is, you know, because it's like a 600-foot route as compared to Raging Waters being an 80-foot route, it's a lot easier to fail on Circus Circus than it is, I mean, to fail on Raging Waters than it is to fail on Circus Circus because it's such a big project. One of the things that I've, I've always been interested with you as I mentioned, is there, there, you know, was this continual evolution and the evolution is important to me because I think the opposite of that, of like sticking with one way to climb or one way to challenge yourself, um, which a lot of Yosemite climbers do, especially in these ethics wars, um, is sort of a recipe for, I mean, just general unhappiness and, and finding yourself in a place where climbing isn't, great for you anymore. So the evolution to me is extremely necessary. So, you know, we talked for a minute about how um, you, during this time in, in Tuolumne, you maybe weren't as focused on El Cap when, when the free climbing, you know, was really taking hold up there. But then you still went on to climb, I think, what is it, three routes on El Cap free um, a little bit later. So another theme that I think goes with your climbing is how the longevity, not just that you've been a climber, but that you've challenged yourself and, and, and maintained a certain level of, uh, of ability that's gone with it, even into, um, two, three, four decades of climbing. I mean, I know, what is it? Six now. Um, but the fact that your performance, you know, has always been at such a high level, I think is a really impressive feat. So tell me about, um, you know, getting lured into, uh, attempting to free climb El Cap, um, and you know, what phase of your climbing was this, how old were you? And, uh, and, and, you know, tell me about the successes there. Well, I totally give credit to Thomas Huber for all the free El Cap routes. I did all three mm-hmm. of them in 1998. He gave me a topo of El Nino, not just a topo, but hand drawn in pencil. And he handed it over to me like Steve, I think you can do this, Schneider. It's such a good route. And, of course, I took the topo. I mean, that's going to be big museum piece. But I didn't think I'd ever climb it. You know, I just took it because it looked cool. So years went by. You know, I was going kind of downhill in my free climbing ability from the years when I was, like, 36, 37. You know, I went to rifle, and I... I did some 13 pluses when I was 36, 37 there. And then for seven years, I didn't do a single 513 plus. And then 19, no, 2003 rolled around. I hadn't gone to Patagonia. I'd been working steady as a root setter for Touchstone back when being a root setter also meant, you know, getting a good workout, climbing the roots that had been done that day. 
and I got strong through the winter. And I went out with Jeff Schoen a couple times to Jailhouse Rock. And it took me a couple tries to do this 513 plus. And I was like, oh my God, I'm climbing 513 plus again. This is great. I'm 43 years old and haven't done this for like six or seven years. And Jeff was like, okay, you got to get that topo out, Schneider. We got to go up on El Nino. So he was instrumental too. And he, he was a great friend of mine, one of my groomsmen who tragically passed away about 15 years ago. And we got up on El Nino together and I was just climbing really good. I borrowed these shoes from Scott Fry and they were like used, what were they? They were a 510 Velcro shoe and they were magical. They were like the magic slippers. And I climbed the lower 513 face pitches like super quickly in like a day or two. And including like the Galapagos, like this 13C. I'm like, wow, we're going on this thing. And Jeff couldn't finish the route. He had some obligations. So I ended up going up on the upper part of El Nino with Brian Cork, who was half my age. You know, he's like 20, 21 years old. And we would go in these all out three day pushes where we'd push the high point just get up there and throw ourselves at these 513 plus pitches and just be exhausted and then just wrapping down, leaving fixed ropes at the end of it. So ultimately on El Nino, I wasn't going to do a whole true ascent in the Hoover style, in Lynn Hill style, where you climb from the bottom to the top with no fixed ropes. But at the time, I was happy to do this route in any way, shape or form. This is a 513 plus route with 13 seats on it that no American had ever done. It had seen maybe three ascents. So my wife, Heather, came along with Brian Cork and I for the final ascent. And we spent six days unlocking the key to the upper part of the climb. At one point, a hold had fell off this one route and turned it from 12B into 513 plus. It was super hard. And Iker Poo, who had done it, had taken these wicked falls because it wasn't bolted properly for that and warned me that it was harder than the Royal Arch, which had been right at my limit, lower down on the route. So I had in my mind to maybe do a variation when I went up there. And it took a couple bolts that we hand drilled in. And we went up the original A3 route adding a couple bolts, and we established this amazing 513A pitch that went up this dihedral, it had this knob of diorite that you grabbed and was a key hold on it that made it go. There was a knee bar right in the middle of this 513 climb that made it cool and super overhanging below you. All the exposure of 2,500 feet on El Cap just dropping down below. and. It ended up having seven 513 pitches, that route. I led six of them, including the cruxes. Brian was able to free climb all the pitches too, except he had to break up the roof pitch, the black cave into two pitches, which was somewhat acceptable style. But yeah, he had an asterisk on the route. But I felt bad about drilling those bolts on the original North America wall. And I ended up 
talking about it with Tom Frost, who put the root up in 64. And he was just like, you know, Steve, well, I can't believe you guys are free climbing that hard on El Cap. That's just amazing. And, you know, Steve, no one owns the roots or the rock in El Cap. It's for everybody up there. And he basically gave me the thumbs up on those bolts that I had placed. You can still like aid climb up there without using them. And though I believe the hangers have been taken off of them, I feel the root and the variation was legitimized by Yuji Hurayama, who is a big hero of mine, who came up and onsighted that pitch. And I was able to talk with him on the radio right before he did it. Yeah, you only need like three cans past that. Go real light. And you'll love it. I didn't get any beta except for gear. And he loved it. He he was able to on-site that. That was the last crux on it. And he did El Nino with just a couple falls and this amazing on-site attempt. And that was the start of my free climbing on El Cap. And in 2004, I got a call from Justin Shaw, who was climbing like 514 mid 514 at jailhouse at the time and we made the first american ascent of golden gate though it took us a couple tries the big note was on the move pitch this 513a that alex huber originally had protected with pitons there was problems with it ug had repeated it but had problems with that pitch because it was so run out the pitons were coming out in his hands so we retreated. This is like pitch 23 or something, Justin and I. And I emailed to Alex Huber, can I add a bolt on your climb? He's like, well, I'll be in the valley in a little bit. We can talk about it. I'm like, well, I wanted to go back on it right away. I'm emailing him. I'm pleading with him. Finally, he relented. and go, okay, Steve, you could put one bolt on it, and you should probably stay off El Corazon. Because I didn't add any bolts to that route, and I wanted it to stay that way. So we were able to do that, <laughs> Justin and I, in our second try, and that was kind of an epic because I ended up bruising or breaking some ribs on that climb and having to do the upper cruxes in total pain. And that led to 2005, where I ended up doing free rider, and it had been done a fair bit by Americans, but. At 45 years old, I partnered up with Sean Stanley Leary, and he was working it on trying to do it in a day. And basically, I think he did it with me because he wanted to help me out. Sean was just this charismatic, great buddy to mine and to like everybody I met. He was like a guy's guy. Everyone wanted to climb with him because he was so unassuming and cool. And if you needed him to, he could lead the hard pitches. And he ended up leading all the Crux 512s on the upper part of Freerider during our three-day ascent. And I hadn't worked any of the pitches on the upper Freerider because I wanted to still try and do these things, what I call Yuji Hurayama style. Try to train yourself to get good enough to on-site this stuff. And if you can't do it, just try to do it as fast as you can. And Yuji never came to the top and rappelled in to work on his free climbing routes. He always went from the ground up. And I was the same. I never went up to the top and worked these routes from the top. I wanted to try and emulate 
my friend and great climber Yuji to to go from the ground up and try to onsite it. And if you couldn't, just do it as fast as you can. So 2005, I did that. I had a great three year run. I was 45 years old when I did the free rider, and I still think that's a record for oldest person to free climb El Cap at the age of 45. Uh, Mark Hudon gave a good effort on trying to trying to beat you by 20 years, but uh, came up just a tiny bit short. Um, still super admirable what he did up there as well. Yeah, it was yeah. heroic what he did. He he's awesome what he did and. It was he was so close on it that it's just a great effort. And as far as talking about longevity and free climbing hard, you know, Hudon's got to be right up there yeah, with yeah. anybody for in sure, America. For sure, yeah, name. he's been climbing out here in Rifle the last few years, and uh, so we get to hang out on occasion and uh, always a joy. And he's got he's still got the cool. psych man. We skipped over a couple things actually too. Is is and and this is actually like. I think the the challenge of even talking to you, Steve, is that the breadth of your career is is hard to encapsulate even in a long form interview, if we want to try to do it that way. But um, you know, we skipped over uh, a time in Patagonia, and uh, I, f- I find it interesting that you know you were so steeped in the traditions of Yosemite as you as you went through all these different eras, you know, and then you also you know sort of continued this tradition, this whole you know, Chenard's famous call for, for the climbers of Yosemite to go into the world and do hard routes on the, you know, the great ranges um, that, that I think it was in like a Chenard catalog or something, that famous article where he sort of called for that. And uh, you did the same thing by becoming interested in, in uh, climbing down in, in Patagonia. So talk about that, if you would, like the call to go to, go to Patagonia in your mind and, and uh, you know, and leading up to um, particularly the Pine Traverse. My mountaineering career started with a conversation with Wally Barker in the Mountain Room Bar. And I was looking for someone to be a jug bunny with me on three routes that I wanted to put together. The Rostrum, the West Face of El Cap, and Astroman. And this was the idea that Scott Franklin had put towards me and we had tried it before and it's harder when you're both trying to free climb everything and we had done the west face and the rostrum scott and i we got to the base of the astroman i was nowhere near ready to do that route and i even had a hard time like down soloing the fourth class to just retreat out of there so i talked wally barker into being a jug bunny on these three routes, I would try and free them all. And he would go behind me, jumaring with a pack on his back with my tennis shoes and all the water and food. He would totally support me. And uh, he was just drunk enough to agree. <laughs> and a few days later, we went out and did this trivecta. I was able to do them. Really cool doing Astroman completely at night by headlamp. Like not a lick of daylight. Um, missing footholds. I'd be like in the Enduro corner, just struggling to lie back. And I look back and I, oh, there's a big foothold there. Oh, I could rest here. <laughs> and we pulled it off. And after that, he goes, Steve, I want you to come with me to Alaska. I'm forming a trip to go up the Cassine. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And 
he had all these people he invited. And of course, I was the only one that actually showed up. So we went up the west buttress of Denali to climatize for the Cassine. And when we were coming down, we had this epic coming back down through Whitney Corner. And friends of ours that we had met on our initial way in, we had flown in with this one guy. And they all died in this crevasse. We were able to survive in our own little shelter that we had been able to get into. But they had gotten into this crevasse without ice tools. And they hadn't been able to get out. And I was just like, oh, man, this sucks. And let's just go back to California. I don't really want to do the casino anymore. And I kind of realized that that kind of mountaineering, high altitude, snow, crevasses, avalanches wasn't what I wanted to get into. And I've never been back to Alaska and wanted to focus more on rock routes. So the next year, 1996, Jimmy Surrett and I partnered up to go try and do Cerro Torre down in Patagonia. I remember like fighting to see the peak through the windshield because we flew in on this beautiful clear day we could just imagine climbers like going for it to the summit on that day and we're getting pictures and then taking turns and i'd read about these peaks in patagonia for years right i'm it's just amazing to actually be there flying over them so that first trip we didn't climb hardly anything i didn't do anything with jimmy but i got addicted to the area and since then, I've been down there and done probably 20 expeditions to Patagonia, mostly to Chilean Patagonia, where I'm sure I've climbed there and spent more time in the base camps than anybody else in the world, for sure. Through my career, make 17 ascents of the Towers of Pine and had some really spiritual, amazing times there on some really crazy rock climbing adventures. I never went down there to solo because I wouldn't want to go down there to solo in Patagonia. It's so good climbing with a partner there. You're limited soloing. But I got onto this route that I eventually called Galazo, which is like a soccer cheer. When someone makes a goal, they go, Galazo! And it's also a really killer chocolate bar. So I got on this with Christian Santalesis. I wanted to do a big new first descent. And this was on the 4,000 foot east face of the central tower of Pine. And there was a few other routes there. And we were trying to do a line that looked pretty thin and hard. And initially followed some of the pitches that Paul Pritchard, Noel Crane, the Brits had done a couple years before. And after a few days on the route, I noticed that Christian wasn't having his normally good time. He was getting prone to being argumentative and getting in sulking bad moods. And I was like, what's going on with you, Christian? What's happening? He's like, well, I just got things going on. I I haven't been spending time with my dad. His dad actually is a full Chilean and 
I'm homesick. You know, I, I did all this trekking before. I've been here long. So on the eighth day of that climb, fully 2,000 feet up, my friend bailed and took a couple ropes down with him. And I always could have gotten down to him if he'd gotten a rope stuck. And it left me with plenty of rope. We had a lot of line up there. And I was left alone on this rad adventure that has sort of been served up to me on a silver platter. And I talked about going down with him. But the thing was, the route was so good. It was so drawing. And it was in a fairly straight line. There weren't any big traverses on it. So I'm like, why shouldn't I just try and get on this a little further? If it goes bad or if something doesn't feel right, I'll just come down. It's pretty much a straight shot down. And Glazo became like the hardest, raddest, most searing adventure of my life by far. I spent 11 days finishing that route properly to the summit. And I'd done the crux pitches with Christian. I've only rated them A4 plus, and then there's probably two A5 pitches on that. And past that, it was getting easier, but I was also doing the more committing part, the upper part alone. So moving camp from one to two to like the 2,500 foot level with 1,500 foot still to climb was a big step of commitment for me. And I would just keep fixing from my portal-edge camp above there. My second camp wasn't protected like the first camp. It was prone to updrafts. And I just was getting pounded through the night sometimes and not getting sleep. And eventually, running out of fuel and with three or four pitches fixed above me, but with almost no sleep, I left at like 12 noon and went on this big 32-hour push from high camp to high camp, making the first ascent of the upper 800 feet of the climb, doing the full summit traverse to the true summit, having a moment there. I was like, yeah, I did it. Awesome. And then going, oh, shit, I am really got a long ways down. I am so committed on this route like I've never ever been before but I just kept my senses around me made it down okay super tired actually lost the ability to coil up a rope and had to just wrap down the last two fixed pitches to my high camp the next day I ran out of fuel and it totally snowed I was resting and I suffered some frostbite it was really becoming a bigger adventure than I ever meant it to be. And the final day, the sun came out and the snow melted off the face. And I was able to retreat off the route, leave my haul bags at the base and just stagger down with these really painful toes back down to Campo Minotaurus, where I was met with a ranger, Hugo who I had been talking with over the radio. And it was a 19-day adventure up there, eight days with Christian, 11 of them alone. But I learned some really rad things. One, that these people that solo these routes, 
whether they're on the wall for a big long time or even Alex Honhold doing free rider. I don't necessarily think they're exceptional people. I think we have that in all of us. I never knew I had that in me till it was presented in front of me and I had to go through all the pain of cramps and pushing myself every day super hard to get there. And then I realized, wow, we all have this amazing capacity to to suffer. And that's kind of where we can actually thrive and really dig deep into ourselves and learn what we actually have and what we're made of. So I learned a lot about that route. It changed me and that after Galazzo, I was no longer trying to prove myself to anybody. I'd already pretty much proved it to myself and I was good. And everything I did in my career after that, I basically did for myself, not so much worrying about if it was going to get in the press or if my sponsors were going to be happy. I was just going to do what I wanted to do because that route made me feel like I was good with myself. That was a changing route in that I had the confidence that I maybe never had, at least in the mountains. And I proved everything I needed to do to myself. And that's the only one I really needed to prove anything to. What year was that? That was around 1998. I'm thinking 98, 99 season. What was the year that you did um, the Pine A Traverse, the, the multiple summit push? Was that like 2002? Yeah, I think it was right in there in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And of course, I didn't plan to go soloing in Patagonia. <laughs> I went to go do this big wall that had been done with a Swiss route and German route, but only this American route that Christian Sanalisi's Brad Jarrett and Chris Bremer had done pre Galazzo. And it was the longest, hardest route in the park, aid wise, except for Galazzo which actually has harder pitches, but isn't as consistently hard. And there's a route to the left of it that I wanted to do. And I went down with Chris Van Lubin and Sean Plunkett. And we arrived there all amped to do this route, bunch of gear. And my partner started having problems with each other. They hadn't really met. You know, though they were big wall climbers in Yosemite with successful careers before them, they just weren't getting along that good. And I ended up going with Chris to the base of the central tower early in the trip to retrieve some equipment. And he had a fresh girlfriend and he was insecure about that. But of course, her last boyfriend had been Chris Sharma. We're at the base of the central tower on a really nice day, trying to do a push on this route. Hadn't got started yet. And Chris goes to me, you know, Steve, I, I feel like I got to talk to my my girlfriend, before I get up on the wall we're going to do on a Scudo, the Spanish Shield. I'm like, yeah, after we do this climb, you should go to town and give her a call. And he goes, no, I, I think I need to go call her right now. And I'm like, well, go call her then. <laughs> and I've never <laughs> climbed with Chris Van Lubin since. <laughs> so the expedition fell apart, and I was look, left to myself. And it was a good, vibrant time in Japanese camp. There's a lot of cool people there. Mike Bennings was there. His wife, newlywed wife, Allison Pennings was there. And a few other Americans and other people. Japanese camp is 
really been a, a great time for me hanging out there in this last spot where the trees are before you go into the rocky forests of the Baldes Silencio, which is the most beautiful, inspiring valley that I've ever been into, ever. So I decided I'd try and solo the towers. I first got the idea to do the three towers in a push from the great Italian climbers, Fabio Leone and Leo Orlandi. And they had come down to try and do it the hard way from south to north, which meant doing not the normal routes. And I thought maybe I could do the routes all in a push if I use all my knowledge, all my Yosemite expertise. And I had a lot of confidence after Galazzo in my ability to handle myself in Patagonia. And you could retreat after any tower. So it wasn't fully committing. You could go up and if it didn't look right, you could just bail. Anyway, I kept trying this thing multiple times and I'd get up the North Tower and I'd get up on the Central Tower and get a little ways up there and the weather turned bad or I wasn't climbing fast enough or there was enough water on the route. Eventually learning more and more about it. And finally, on my fourth attempt, I got up top of the central tower and I started going down the south face which I'd never even seen before so this is like a 2500 foot face and I go I'll go down the Kearney Knight route from the 80s and of course I didn't follow that route down I got onto an Italian route that the Ragni Italians had done and I had to make a bivy partway down and I should have just kept going because in the morning the wind cooked up and it was just cutting loose. And then I had a rope get stuck when I was pulling it. It got thrown up on a flake and I had to cut my primary line. And so then I was doing smaller repels. I still had two ropes and it was about three pitches from the ground and the wind's just howling. I'm having an epic time just trying to fight my way down this route, just getting spent mentally, physically. And I heard this bang and I hadn't been able to hear this rock fall until it actually hit right next to me. And I look up and I see like these van sized rocks coming straight for me. And I calculated my chances of living then were probably about 50, 50. And I was glued to an anchor. I couldn't swing side to side. And I closed my eyes. <laughs> Just prayed, don't be my time. Don't be my time. You know, if I can get off this thing alive, I'll never climb here again. Which, of course, was a full lie. Anyway, I was spared by a few meters from getting plastered against the wall. I quickly made three wraps down. And I was spent. And I walked off the central tower and I went into town, a total beaten man. And then I heard about Dean, Dean Potter. And he had climbed Serratore once in Fitzroy twice. And he had only roped up for one pitch. He had done 20,000 feet of climbing and only roped up for one pitch. And it was just phenomenal. And it was an inspiration. I go, I'm going to go up and give this thing one more try. I'm just inspired by Dean. I went back up there. 
And I finally got the two days of good weather that I needed. And I was fast and I had done my descent, made the anchors down the South Tower okay. So I was able to do the North Tower and Central Tower together on my first day. Then huddled up, you know, no bivy gear, just putting my feet in my backpack and on ropes, just kind of shivering through the night. I slept a little bit and then made another 600-foot rappel to the base of the South Tower. And I had a great run in the South Tower. It only took me eight hours. I was going half hour per pitch, 20 minutes to lead it, five minutes to wrap, five minutes to clean for like the entirety of the whole route. Till I was about 500 feet from the summit. And then I thought, wow, it's low angle here. I don't think I need a rope. I'll leave the rope behind. I free soloed the last 500 feet. Luckily, there wasn't anything hard. Got to the top of the central tower on this beautiful day. I mean, top of the south tower. I finished the trivecta. I still had a long ways to go to get down. But the view from there was amazing. You're at the geographic center of the park there on the top of the South Tower. It's the tallest of the summits of Pine. It's of the Piney Towers. It's also the hardest to climb. I had fully a 3,000-foot descent ahead of me, but I was able to make that. The weather held. Got down to the base, popped a couple caffeine pills or uptime. Got back down to camp 51 hours after I left and had been 32 hours from the top of the North Tower to the top of the South Tower. And a couple hours later, it started raining. I just made the window. And I was so psyched to pull that off, so happy. And after that, I just never did anything harder than that in the park than putting that all together. But I feel like it was definitely one of the greatest accomplishments using all those years in Yosemite, putting it all together. And like, I really don't like to climb solo because it's so much harder and slower, more dangerous. But doing that again, like Galazzo, made me feel really good about myself, gave me extra confidence. And I was ready to kind of like hang my hat on that, that I never did anything that expensive or that hard ever again in my climbing career. Yeah, I mean, like I started this conversation about Patagonia, talking about, you know, Chenard's call to, to, to the great ranges. And it's, you know, it's like you epitomize that. And once again, like using all your skills that you'd gained and all those sun-drenched days in Yosemite to take it to this whole other, you know, venue that has all these different challenges. Um, but the rock climbing is the part that you had on lock, you know? Yeah, fully that all the training I'd done in the valley was able to put it together. I had done almost everything rope solo. I hadn't mm -hmm. free soloed except up to like the level of maybe five seven. I'd done one five eight pitch on a previous attempt on the central tower, free solo, and I just felt like that was too much. I'd been a little bit too close to the edge and I'd like to refer to it as like married man soloing. I'd been with this lady, Heather Bear, for 10 years, five of them married, and I didn't want her to have to read my obituary. So I, I made it as safe as possible. I think that reverse could be done by someone like Alex in a single 24-hour period, by someone who could free solo a lot of that ground and go a lot faster. But Yeah, certainly. 
and definitely two partners in a day could free climb all of it mm -hmm. in 24 hours. And that would be a really cool rad day. That's up and coming some of the future. Throughout this interview, um, you've mentioned your wife, Heather, um, who is also responsible for, for getting this going an hour and a half ago um, <laughs> as far as the technology. So we have to give a thanks to her for that as well. Um, but let's talk about like the longevity of your climbing career and maybe in the context of also having been married to this uh, woman for, what did you say, how many years? We had our 25th anniversary. Okay. But we've been together 30 years as a solid couple. Yeah. Uh, back since about 1990, right in there. We're both about yeah. 30 years yeah. old. We were born within six months of each other. We were both single when we met each other in the City Rock gym. And she was vertical dancing on the wall. And I thought that was pretty cool. And Hans was actually the one who got introduced to them and started dancing with them first. And he was like the star dancer of the first vertical dance performance ever in the United States, as far as I know, 1990. But I came along and I was the lucky one that actually ended up getting to date Heather Bear in the end. And when I taught her how to climb initially, I had no idea the monster that she would turn out to be. She is so tenacious and so accomplished and has gotten big goals in climbing, and we have gone out and sought them. And I've been lucky to go along the way. Uh, she's climbed 512C in Rifle, Colorado. She's climbed El Cap with me approximately 30 times, which I think is about third in the world among females. I should mention Hans is first in males. I'm second with our number of ascents. And she's been with me to Patagonia on probably 12 of my expeditions. After I'd gone down and done all the towers, she's like, okay, I want to do them all too. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so we went and did the central <laughs> tower, and I tried to free climb that. That's the only tower I haven't actually free climbed. I still that have that as a far-fetched goal in my career. But I was trying to do the original Bonington route, which is 512+, plus, and I probably should have just opted to do the 511-plus the variation. And then we did the South Tower, and that was a multi-year, multi-expedition adventure. And we eventually did that with an unplanned bivouac about 700 feet from the top. We were with a Chilean friend of ours, Ivo Kazanovich, and we were getting lost in the dark. I kind of turned to Heather. I go, well, how bad do you want it? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how bad do you want this thing? Because we, we can't do it right now. It's too dark. We can't figure out where the route is. Eva was coming down from where he was. He was off route. And it's like, we're on this big ledge. If we want to do this thing, we got a bivy here. And she's like, I want it really bad. It's like, okay, let's spoon you. You know, you're going to be the coldest probably because she's so fit with all her dancing and working out that she doesn't have much body fat. So Evo got on one side. I got on one side. She got in the middle. We piled up these rocks, keep the wind off. And we're like, okay, if the morning comes and it's clear, we'll go for it. If it's storming, we'll have to go down. So it was totally medium in the morning. 
the sun never really came out. It was blocked by clouds. It never got warm, but it's good enough for us to keep going. We got to the summit, and as soon as we hit the very top, this wind was hitting us, but we were protected as soon as we dropped below it. But it was scary. It looked like a storm was coming in, and that was a long, hard fight down off the summit of the South Tower. We made a team work where Heather and I were simul repel together with the ropes fixed, so we're actually not simul repelling with all the dangers in current with that. And Evo would come down and pull the ropes. So we would always like set the rappel up. Evo would be the younger guy, do all the muscle work. When the ropes got stuck, he was the one that jugged up, fixed them to come down, and the ropes were like totally saturated with water. It was so hard to get off that peak. But we got down and back to base camp after 49 hours of pushing it because we hadn't slept on that. And I was like, Heather, I don't want to do any more 49-hour pushes, okay? No more pushes that are longer than our age because we were both about 50 or so then. (laughs) And, you know, I just saw my wife then, you know, she really wanted a goal. She was willing to suffer hugely through it. She had a super hard night through freezing and moaning. And I really admire her for her perseverance, her ability to withstand pain and to keep going in the face of not necessarily danger, but in the face of, you know, a lot of really hard work and, and, tentatively you know risking ourselves to to do that that i wanted to back off and since we did that about 12 years ago we haven't pushed it as much like that though we still climb El cap together as much as we can and have a great time and she's been like an inspiration to me and i've been an inspiration to her and we actually one of the words we have on our wedding rings is inspiration and that's been a really cool thing for us to do. We've done many expeditions to Patagonia. We've gone to Peru. We've gone to areas of the globe. Pakistan made a significant first ascent. And it's been lucky for me that I've had this partner that, I mean, sometimes I feel like she's crashed the expedition and made it harder sometimes because you're dealing with someone that, you're married to and you can legally argue with and you just got to still keep going as opposed to someone you're just going out with and you're truly <laughs> trying to like be on your best of terms. But, you know, we do productive arguing, whether it's at home or on an expedition, we work through it and we get through it and we climb and we've made a lot of victorious summits together. And that's been really a special part of our relationship. Now, uh, was she instrumental in your um, nickname. I can't quite remember the story, and I'd be remiss not to ask you about Shapupe. <laughs> I know you've re- repeated this. Okay. Okay, so Shapupe comes from a song, The Music Man. And this is a play that became a movie and later became an extensive celebration, <laughs> extensive touchdown celebration by Peter Griffin on the family guy. So it has a whole history, but my girlfriend Sheer at the time 
that I put up this route, was working on it, was in this play. The music man, she kept singing a song around the house. She poopy, she poopy, the girl is hard to get. She poopy, she poopy, but you can win her yet. And I thought that was kind of catchy. And I started singing it around the house too and became the name of this route. And Tuolumne that I still feel is like the best route in the entire Tuolumne Meadows <laughs> cert. And it's sort of stuck as a nickname because I raved about it so hard. Now, I was under that nickname for quite a number of years, maybe a dozen years. But then I had someone misspell it, sending a wrench back from like a gym that I'd been doing a course setting clinic in Ohio <laughs> or Indiana or somewhere. And it comes back, there's this extra O in the end. And POI, that's like, that has significance because. The street I live on now is Poirier. It starts <laughs> P-O-I. And I'm like, that's it. My nickname is now Chapeau Poir. So it kind of was a graduation mm -hmm. from my old girlfriend nickname, which wasn't really honoring my wife, Heather. So I kind of morphed it. So it was different from that. And it has this French accent, if properly you know, the French say it best, or Leo Holding is English accents. Oh, stupid boy, how are you doing, mate? And that's been my nickname ever <laughs> since. Or, like, you might get, like, Scott Franklin, he'll shorten it to Poupois. And it's pretty much universal when I say that nickname, even in Pakistan. It's like, <laughs> my nickname, Poupois, and they're, like, laughing at it. Like, that's the funniest thing they ever heard. So... I like that my nickname kind of comes before me and presents an attitude of good humor. I feel like if we can't poke fun at ourselves, then we really shouldn't be able to poke fun at each other, which I also like to do. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Steve Schneider for doing that. Hope those little clicks and pops weren't too much. It was an Apple thing. You know, in all this time of doing remote interviews, the only time I have problems is with Max. I don't know why everyone loves those things so much. I don't get it. If you want to know more about Steve Schneider, good luck, actually. Get out there and, and do some research, but uh, I think he's been too busy climbing for 40, 50 years than to create some sort of media empire behind his name. So anyway, thanks again, Steve. It's good talking to you. All right, folks. It's Rocktober, baby. It's actually cooling off. Seriously cooling off. I think it snowed here today. But yeah, let's get out there and have some fun. And of course, take care of each other and check your knots. <laughs> Ship poopy, ship poopy, ship poopy, but you can win her yet.
once just to raise the curtain. Walk around twice and you make for certain. Once more in a flower garden, she will never get sore if you beg her pardon. Squeeze her once when she is a looking. Get a squeeze back, that's fancy cooking. Once more for a pepper up, and she will never get sore on the way to supper.